examining the Christian worldview. And one of the main presuppositions of the Christian worldview that we get from our axiom. What's our axiom, by the way? It's God's Word. So from our axiom of God's Word, we move upward to the presuppositions. What does God's Word tell us about the world? One of the things is that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. And we're going to have our visionary leader come up and share with us on that. All right. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, Vinny. That was awesome. Powerful time of worship. So let's open up to Ephesians chapter 2 and let's go deep from where we left off yesterday. So what I want to do today is take the opportunity to really reinforce that everybody has faith. So the title of today's message is Everybody Has Faith, Just Not the Right Kind. Or we could say everybody has faith, just not in the right thing or person. And we're supposed to have it in God. So salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 is the passage. And let's just go down to verse 8 through 10 for the sake of time today. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have no problem as non-Calvinists, as Arminians, to include in the gift of God grace, salvation, and faith. We have no problem in including that. Sometimes people argue over whether or not faith should be included in the gift of God. Maybe it's only grace. Maybe it's just salvation because it's a little bit unclear in the Greek. Also, the word faith has a different um, verb, uh, different ending and is not included in the kind of uh, verbiage that would be um, grammar that would be needed to be included in gift. Somebody, some people argue like that, like William Lane Craig since faith is not ending in the same tense or ending in the same gender, I believe. I'm not sure of how he comes up with that, but you can look at that. So some people make grammatical arguments to say faith is not included in other words. I'm not a Greek grammatarian. I can't even pronounce the word. Uh, grammatarian, is that the right way of pronouncing the word? Just spell the word. Grammatarian, see if it comes up. Trust me, there are such people as grammatarians. That means they're good at grammar. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. But the point here for us is we can easily accept into our worldview that grace, salvation, and faith are all the gift of God. Why does it matter? Because the Calvinist wants to say that we're irresistibly drawn in. And this is one of their famous passages. So they'll say the gift of God is the very faith that you have. So if God gives you the gift of faith, you'll believe in God and be born again. You'll, well, you'll be regenerated first, and then you'll confess Jesus that, to Jesus that you want to be born again, which is actually what they say, that the Holy Spirit comes in, changes you, makes you new, regenerates you, and then you can confess your need to be born again and for salvation. And as you can see, they put the order backwards. We confess first that we want to be born again, and then we're born again. Did you see the word there, good sir? Grammarian. So I added a T, no T, no grammatarian there. Uh, Grammarian. There we go. So now you've learned something. Everyone has learned that word if you didn't know it before, and I've learned how to pronounce it right. Welcome to Bible College, where even the professors learn things. Amen. 
Now, why is this important? Once again, is because we as Arminians don't believe that faith is irresistibly given to you and then not given to everybody else. And that's what it leads to, is double predestination. So it sounds real cool when you're talking about the Christian. You were lost. You were dead in your sins. You couldn't do anything for yourself. Here comes the Holy Spirit, gives you faith. Now you believe. Now you're saved. That's real cool, right? That's the part of Calvinism that John Piper and all those guys really emphasize and teach on. You know, that's the part that David Platt likes, Matt Chandler. Everybody likes to hear that, that God did something in you and you can't lose it now and everything's great. But there's another side of it. It's called the basement of Calvinism. There's another uh, group of people that we're not talking about when we talk about how you got saved because that means there's a group of people God's not giving that faith to. There's a group of people that are not being irresistibly drawn in and therefore they're perishing based upon God's neglect of them. And some people say, well, they're still doing what they want by nature, and that's to be a sinner. They're compatibilistic. They're, they're compatible with their nature. They're not wishing they were saved. They want to stay damned. But then the simple question is, back it up one step further, who gave them that nature? Well, somebody may say, well, Adam and Eve gave them that nature. Yeah, but wasn't God the one in charge of allowing Adam and Eve to fall? So if God knew that by Adam and Eve falling, over 30, uh, or excuse me, over 75% of the population would be going to hell, because if you take the parable uh, just as, as, as population goes, only 25% are good seed. 75% are either weedy seed, hard, hard ground, et cetera, right? So... Um, if you look at 75% of the, the population being lost, and that's just a you know, way to take that parable for percentages, but let's just say it this way, wide is the gate and many there be that find it. Well, why is that happening? Because God predestined for most of humanity that he created to go to hell because he didn't irresistibly give them this gift, draw them in by his grace, and give, give them faith. Now, that is the problem with Calvinism, and that's why John Wesley said that it makes God out to be worse than the devil. Because God can save, but he doesn't want to save. God says he loves, but he really loves everyone in John 3, 16 and places like that, loves the whole world, but he really doesn't. Now, how do we simply explain it? Because somebody then may say to us, well, if God has allowed us all to have faith, then why aren't all saved? What's the difference between you and somebody else that's still lost? Maybe a friend that you went to church with. Why are you saved and they're not saved if God has given them all the opportunity? And then you say, it's your choice. That's how we answer back. We say it's, their, you know, it's the per choice of the person. And then they go, well, hold up. The Bible says you can't do anything good. So you're basically saying there's one thing better about you than the sinner going to hell, and that is the choice that you made to go to heaven. Now, that is something you can both about and that's considered a work. Are they true in that? No. What they have done is they have conflated definitions. They have changed definitions of faith and choice. The choice to have faith is not considered a good work. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Listen to what it says. And yes, it's given to our credit. It is given to our credit. So yes, we get credited something that they don't based on using our choice. Now somebody says, well, why is your choice the way your choice is? The choice belongs to the choice. Chooser. 
And that goes back to the image of God. Now let's go to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. Now notice, we don't boast in works, the works of the law. That's what the context is here. But not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he gets the credit for believing God. How much more simpler can it be? So the Calvinist tries to say, well, there's no good thing in us. How could we ever believe? God gave us a choice to believe. God gave us his image. God gave us breath, and I can use my breath for wickedness or for righteousness. God gave me a tongue. I can use it for wholesome words, godly words, or ungodly, unwholesome speech. He continues to destroy the Calvinist fatalistic worldview. He destroys it here. They have no leg to stand on after reading these verses. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but an obligation. So wages must be given as a reward to work as an obligation. And that is not what salvation is. Salvation is not in Christianity anything like Islam, anything like Hinduism, anything like the cults, Mormonism, etc., where everything is an obligation. God has to do this because you fasted. God has to do this because you worked. No. Now look at the distinction. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith, whose faith? Their faith is credited as righteousness. So is trusting God considered a work? No, it's the exact opposite of a work according to this. Now, if they want to conflate putting faith in God and now call to work, they are committing eisegesis and showing us that they're not capable of handling the text of scriptures. In other words, they're a spiritual nincompoop. You cannot miss this. It is plain as day. To the one who does not work. I am not working, but what am I doing Trusting God. So does everyone have the chance to put their faith in God? Absolutely. Now you may say, what about those who have not heard the gospel? The Bible says they will be judged according to their conscience to trust God as a creator, to trust God as someone who is moral. These are the things that we see in creation and in conscience. And I don't have time to get into that today. But this is clear. And it's their faith. Whose faith is it? Their faith. So God gives it as a gift. Absolutely, we are given the gift of faith. It's a part of the Imago Day to trust and believe in things. And when we hear the word of God, it's up to us to trust and obey God's word, to believe God's word. So let's take, for example, you've never heard God's word, but somebody in your village says, I have uh, beans to sell you for this amount of uh, corn. You know, we'll make a trade. You can trust them and apply your faith to that. Can you do that to the gospel? No, because you haven't heard it yet. But in your image of God, you can make transactions and you can put your faith and trust in your partner, uh, your marriage, you know, your, your children, all of these other things you're doing in your commerce. Now the preacher comes, the missionary comes, and tells you the story about about the death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is there convicting you. It is a strong urge to believe this. The Holy Spirit is doing everything but forcing you to believe. He is awakening your heart. He is giving you the ability to understand. You're hearing it. Now it's your choice. 
Amen? The same way you made a decision to trust the person to make an exchange for goods, you now have a choice to make an exchange of faith in Jesus for your sins, for his righteousness, your condemnation and wrath for his justification and salvation. Amen? And listen to it. It goes on. David says the same thing. The same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits. Do you see the word there, credit? You get credit for this. Whom God credits righteousness apart from works. You get righteousness credited to you apart from works by doing what? Believing God. Trusting God. Let's see how David said it. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now, let's go to that passage so we take it in context. Let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Who kept silent? Just say I. I. When the person kept silent, you're like, is that David writing? Is that one of the psalmists? Yeah, it's David there. So who kept silent? David or I. Let's just say David now. Who kept silent? David. Now you know who's speaking. He said, my bones wasted away. So when I didn't do something... Right after I sinned, I suffered for it through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your heavy was heavy, excuse me, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Somebody say conviction. Conviction. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then you irresistibly drew me, and I was forced to con- give my confession, like the fish there, you know, at the, at the wedding dance. Mm-hmm. You know, bring me in, Jesus. No, you were heavy upon me. You weren't forcing me, but you were convicting me. I was hearing the Spirit speak to me, and I was under conviction. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did that based on choice. Do I deserve salvation? Absolutely not. But can I admit I need salvation? Yes. Just because I can't call the president doesn't mean I can't answer the call when he calls me. Just because I can't fly to uh, the moon doesn't mean I can't take a rocket ship there. Grace enables us to do what pleases God. God gives us grace, but it's resistible grace. It's not irresistible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It would be called slavery. God puts us into slavery. Then I acknowledge we become willing bondservants of Jesus, though, as the Bible says. And there's a reason behind that, because in Leviticus, after you've served your time and paid your debt, you could become a permanent slave that would have rights as, person, as a person's family member. And that's what we become for Jesus. Our debts have been paid through Christ, and now we say, willingly, we want to be your servants, your slaves. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did God do? And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now keep reading. Therefore, let all those who are irresistibly drawn pray to you. No, therefore, let all the faithful pray to you. Do you see that they can't, the Calvinists can't even take scriptures in context? 
Read the Psalms. That's why when you read them talking about in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I love, Esau I hated, they can't even say that Paul has the right, trans, uh, right interpretation of Malachi. They literally, and James White says this, and you, you know if you've listened to him, he has to admit, I believe Paul uses a different interpretation other than the one the prophet meant there because Esau and Jacob are the nations. One is being refused and Israel's being blessed. It has nothing to do with their salvation. But that's their excuse to say God chose one to be saved and said, I hated Esau. But you go right back to the context. That's in Malachi. He's speaking to the Edomites and the Israelites as nations. We don't know if Esau went to hell. It looked like he had a kind spirit towards Jacob and a forgiving spirit. He might have repented himself and been forgiven. So that had nothing to do with individual salvation. That had to do with God choosing of nations. Can I hear an amen? Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. See, God will not always be reaching out his hand to us. God will not always be convicting us. God will not always be sending the preacher to us. As I go out on the gospel truck today, praise God. He will not always be doing that. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. Amen. So that's the, the simple context there. It's not hard to understand. So going back to Ephesians, what do we learn? We're saved by grace that God gives us through faith that he gives us, and we apply it the way he told us to, and that's not of ourselves. We don't take credit for having those things, but we get it credited to us when we use the faith he gave us to honor him. Just like I can't take credit for the oxygen in my lungs, but I get credited when I use my lungs to preach his gospel and do the wonderful works. I can't take credit for making myself, but when I use myself and I love God with myself, I get rewarded for that in the service that I do in his kingdom. Amen. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the part that I love to uh, enunciate here and to bring out is that this is not an ongoing work. This is now presently done. You are presently God's handiwork because you were past tense created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So you're not waiting to become perfected in Christ. You're perfect in Christ right now. You're not waiting to be sanctified. You are sanctified right now. And what are you responsible to do since you are saved and sanctified? You are responsible to do the good works which God has already prepared for you to do. Otherwise, you could say, well, my heart hasn't been totally transformed, so that's why I can't always live without lust. I mean, God has to work on me another two years to get the lust out, so I'm not really responsible to keep the command not to have lust in my heart. That's how these people talk as well. Calvinists love sin, and they love to live in sin. I've even heard them say that God uses sin like Paul's thorn in the flesh to keep them humble. So it's kind of good that they sin the way they sin so that they're reminded that they're part sinner and part saint. To hell with that false theology. Let's go to heaven with Jesus and biblical theology. I am a saint right now. I am holy as he is holy. I am perfect as he is holy. I am the righteousness of God right now in Christ Jesus. Amen. As much as I was a sinner without Christ is as much as I am a saint in Christ, as much as I was unrighteous before the blood of Jesus, is as much as I am righteous in the blood of Jesus. And if you know theology, it's 100% both ways. 
There is no in-between. It's 100% sinner or 100% saint. Now, do we always live like it? No. And once again, that's our fault for not acting in faith. So I didn't know the Calvinist would catch a licking today. I was supposed to be going for the unbeliever. But the Calvinist is getting a free one today. Amen? And so here's the point. The point is there is not one good work that you cannot do now that you are in Christ. You are commanded to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You were created to do that in Christ Jesus. You do that now. You were said not, you were commanded not to have lust in your heart. Don't have any lust in your heart. And the Bible says whatever is not, and let me just make it real simple. Whatever is not of faith is of sin. Is sin. So what was the first sin in the Garden of Eden? Unbelief. And where did unbelief come from? The act of pride. But we have a, a circle that's it's hard to figure out where it starts. Does pride bring the unbelief or does the unbelief bring the pride? I'll probably say the unbelief brings the pride. So unbelief, then pride, then the action. Does everybody get it? He goes unbelief, the pride, and then the desires of the flesh. And that's what led Adam and Eve down that road. And it's the same thing that's happening today. And so when we are born again, we are given all that we need to live for Christ. That's why the Bible says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That's why the Bible says you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. What do all things mean? All things, come on. We use that like I can do all things through Christ when you're about ready to take a test or something in college. How about all things, meaning all commands? I can do all commands through Christ who gives me strength. I can obey all commands through Christ who gives me strength. Greater is he that's in me than all the flesh that I have, than all the devil tempting that flesh in Jesus' name. Amen? That's what the Bible says. That's why the Bible teaches us in 1 John that those who are born of God cannot continue in sin. That's why the Bible says Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. If you are born again, the, the devil's work has been destroyed and you stop living as an oxymoron. Stop living as if the devil's not been destroyed in your life. His works have not been destroyed. You don't have the devil's works in you anymore. You're the handiwork of God. Now, when Jesus said it was finished, did he mean it or not? Amen. He meant it. What is finished? My sanctification is finished. My salvation is finished. My struggle against sin is finished. My unbelief and doubt is finished. It's all in him now. So I'm responsible, amen, to grow in faith. And let's just go there. How do I grow in my faith? Let's go to 2 Peter. Because then people say, well, oh, what are you saying? That we're supposed to do stuff with our faith? Yeah, that's kind of the whole point. Because if it was God irresistibly drawing us through that faith, then that means faith would be stagnant. It would just be like an on and off switch. It's on now. There's nothing you can do to grow it. The Bible actually says you're responsible to grow your faith. Come on, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's go to verse 3. His divine power has given us only some things we need for a godly life. Come on, somebody, help me preach. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's good preaching right there. You have all the power you need for a godly life. It comes through you knowing that. The more you know him, the more you'll live like him. Some people ask me, well, Joe, have you been sinless since you've been saved? No, but I tell them all the time, I sin less. Come on, somebody, because I know that God gave me that power, and I don't have to wonder whether or not it's his will or not to set me free from sin. I've already been set free from sin. That's what the Bible says in John chapter 8. You are my disciples if you hold to my teachings, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Bible says you won't be a slave to sin anymore. 
anymore. The Bible says a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it to get forever. So I'm not a slave in that sense. I'm a son. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Come on, somebody. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, God's glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises. So as I put up on the Facebook today, the devil can't take, now as a Christian, the devil cannot take what you don't let go of. The devil can't take one thing. Now, sometimes we think about God's promises like this, like we got to be the little engine that could and keep having faith to make the thing happen. That's the wrong way to look at it. God has already made it happen. He says, trust me. Do you understand that? Let me give it to you clearly like this. Sometimes we think, ooh, man, we got to get to 100,000. We got to do more to be more, do more to be more. And we get on that rat race of works to think that, that it's dependent upon us and that if somebody leaves the church or maybe I don't preach as good as I should have one day or something, you know, and, and something goes wrong, that it's not going to happen. Listen, God already saw the 100,000. And 10, 20 years ago, whenever he put it in my heart, he saw it first and then told me about it. It's not like we're trying to make it happen to convince God we want it. God said, son, I already saw you with it. I already saw you with it. Are you listening? Now let me come back here and tell you about it. I already saw you there. Are you hearing me? God said, I already saw the 50 churches. It's as real as it's real right now. That's what faith is. Now faith says, I trust you. God already had, God, God's not coming to Abraham going, oh, I'm freaking out. I don't know how to do this. God says, I already see billions of Christians coming from the Messiah. He said, I already see the hundreds of millions of Jewish people. I already see them as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand. And I'm going to come here and tell you what's going to happen. Now, do you believe me or not? Sure choice. Oh, no, I got to get it all on my own. My, my wife's telling me to have sex with the concubine or have sex with the, the maidservant. You see? That's what, that's what unbelief is. That's why it's sin, because we don't stay true to what God's plan is. So he said, God's own glory and goodness has given us the great precious promises. Let's trust his promises, amen? He's already seen what he's told you. So it's not like he, we're trying to convince him of it. All we have to do is believe him and work the plan he gave us. Yes, there are good works to do, but they're prepared for us in his power to accomplish. So it's not like I have to start wringing my hands saying, man, I'm getting older now. Is this really going to happen? That's the whole story of Abraham. It's purposely meant to make you see everything was impossible against him. He's old. He has no children. He's in a place where all these kingdoms exist. You know, and he has nothing, and yet he's being told he's going to basically rule the world. His the whole everything through him, what comes through him is going to impact every nation. He's going to be the father of all these nations now. So God showed us if God did it with Abraham, he'll do it with us. And then what's the same story we learn of faith with Moses? It doesn't matter how many attacks you get. It doesn't matter how long you feel you've been in bondage or to, been held back by pharaohs. You know, I will deliver you. You cannot be held back. That's the story of Joseph. That's the story of everybody in the Bible. That's why the Bibles, that's why the prophets summarize the whole entire stories of the Bible and says, the just shall live by faith. 
You look at any just person in the Bible, and what's the story you get from them? What's the lesson you get from their story? The just shall live by faith. Go and do likewise. Amen? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature. We're supposed to get out of our naughty nature and participate in the divine nature. I'm dancing with the divine, amen? Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We're not supposed to stay in it. Now look at this. If faith was something that God just irresistibly gave us, then we would have no input into how faith acts now or grows now or, or how faith can continue in our lives. It would just be, it's like a light switch. It's just on and it's just the way it is. No, it says for this very reason. For what very reason? For the reason that now I've been given everything I need for life and godliness by God's glory and goodness through his great and precious promises so that I may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world for that reason. Now make every effort. You make the effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you, you, not your grandma, not your pastor, not your professor, you, you, Sadia, you, each one of you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge, excuse me, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted. You're still a Christian, but you nearsighted. All you can see is what's in front of you. You don't have faith to see what God said he would do. All you see is your problems. All you see is all of this. That's why you complain and put it up on Facebook all the time. Amen? We ain't talking about you. We're talking about your, your friend that stayed home today or didn't come to Bible college or that person that's in your class, right? It's not you. That's no preacher saying right there. We're not talking about you. But how many know? that you can be nearsighted if you don't live by faith. How many know that you can discourage yourself when you don't live by faith? It says they've become nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. Somebody say, make every effort. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Yeah, I believe we've been elected. It's no accident I'm here. God knows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, but it's still our choice in the end, and it's not just fatalism. God is knowing the end from the beginning, but he knows that in the middle we got to do what he, uh, uh, he knows we're going to do, and it's still your choice. Just because, just because I may know the end of the football game because I've watched it before, it's a rerun, doesn't mean those players still don't make their choices and do their things. God may be all-knowing and know everything we do, and he's got it all plan to work for his good, but that doesn't mean that in his plan he doesn't know what I'm going to do by my own free will, that I'm responsible to do that. Amen? He knows what my free will decision will be, and he's already made decisions around that, but I'm still responsible for that. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. How much will you stumble if you do these things? You will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to make that more plainer. Just read it, live it, and do it. Amen? Amen. Now, that was just the introduction. Now, let me get into the unbeliever here. Because what the unbeliever oftentimes wants to do, and as our generation becomes more and more unbelieving, more secular, is what they want to do is say that you Christians have faith, but we don't have faith. And we don't need faith because we base everything on evidence. So they'll say... I don't need to have faith and two plus two is four. That's a fact. I can take two apples, have another two apples here, and then now I've got four apples. See, I didn't need any faith for that. 
They'll say things like, you only need things, you only need faith in things that are really not important in life. Maybe there is a God. Somebody may not be a strong atheist. They may be an agnostic. They may say, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But I don't need to worry about that because what I do here is all that matters. And all that matters is that I take care of my family, do these kinds of nice things. And if there is a God, then I'm sure he'll be cool with that because they will say, but for sure I know that God is not your God because your God's so petty. He does all these things that seem to be illogical and irrational, talking snakes, talking donkeys, waters parting, all of that. And then they'll say, even if that is true, I don't need to have faith in that because there's no evidence. And, and, and as one atheist was asked, what would you say to God uh, on Judgment Day if you found out he did exist? The atheist smart-alecky said he would go to God and say, why would you make it so hard for me and so dumb for me to have to believe in you? you know? Why would you make it so hard? You know? If you were really God and you were here, man, you could have done this a hundred different ways is basically what they're saying. Now, is that true that they don't have faith? Absolutely not. And, and this is the problem that's going on in the cutting edge right now in apologetics is they're trying to change the definition of faith. And what they'll do is they'll take their corny examples from when they were in Sunday school because most of them only have a Sunday school education of the Bible. They're very Bible illiterate. You think like people like Richard Dawkins, <clears throat> excuse me, Sam Harris or others are very smart in the Bible. They're not at all. They are really biblical nincompoops, and I mean that in the nicest sense. I, I do. I respect them, and I want to be nice to them, but they just they don't even understand the story. That's why I've showed you guys in the Worldview series, when people bring up, like, the problem of evil, we just go, did you, did you read the book of Genesis? Like, like, it's in our story. We've kind of pretty much already understood that. That's why Jesus came, to be the problem solver of the problem of evil. You know, like, God's about ready to pretty much wipe the whole planet clean of us, but thankfully he spared Noah. You know, uh, you know th- th- this is, shouldn't surprise anybody. Or when people say, you know, if God's so loving, why would he send people to hell? They're already using the wrong verbiage. It's like, God doesn't send anybody to hell. Bible says over and over and over again, he wishes all to be saved, none to perish. God so loved the world. But why do people go to hell? Because they love their darkness. They love their sin. They don't want to come into the light. They're proud. You look at the story of like even um, Pharaoh. You know, people say, if I saw a sign, I saw the light. No, how does it go? I saw the sun, opened up my eyes this time, the sign. There you go. Let's sing it together. I saw the sign. I opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Thank you. So that's what people say. Oh, if I just see some signs, like, I'll believe. You, you mean like signs, like a whole river turning blood? Yeah. Well, they didn't believe. You mean like a, like a whole place being swarmed with gnats? Yeah, something like that, I'll believe. Yeah, they didn't believe having all of that. Well, well, what if somebody was raised from the dead? The, the Pharisees who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, do you know what they did? They disbelieved even more now and tried to kill Lazarus, okay? So signs don't change nothing because if you're proud, you'll still disbelieve. But here's my point in all of that. You see God doing that to Pharaoh one at a time. Now, he says from the beginning, I know Pharaoh's not going to listen, and I'm just going to harden his heart. How do you get hardened if the Bible uh, teaches we're already all hardened like a Calvinist believes? You get hardened because you've made the wrong choices, and now God says, I'm going to punish you and let you be a reprobate, and I'm not going to put that heavy hand of conviction on you anymore. If we're all dead according to Calvinists and nobody can make a choice when the gospel is preached, then what's the point of hardening? Because if we're dead like Lazarus and we can't see and hear, what's the point of 
cutting out the eyes of a corpse, cutting off their ears. They're already dead, right? But why does it say they have eyes but they can't see, ears but they can't hear? It's because we're born in sin, yes, but we choose whether or not we're going to harden our hearts and resist and become even possibly reprobates to where it's too late. Now, somebody says uh, to me, how do I know if it's too late or not? If you're asking that question, it's not too late. Amen? Those who are not asking that question, generally, I'm the one, that's the ones I'm concerned for. So you look at this with Pharaoh, and you look at this with the, the, the Egyptians. They didn't learn. They didn't learn. Now, God knew they wouldn't, but he does it to show us that sign after sign and miracle and even punishment, they still don't change. And so can we change anybody that way? No. God is showing us throughout these stories of the Bible that what the atheist and the unbeliever and all these things are asking for have already been done. What's God supposed to do? Reset history every time somebody comes and goes, show me a sign. Okay, let's make it rain down hail again. You know, is that, is that what God's supposed to do? No, he's not supposed to repeat history. Well, if I just saw Jesus, is Jesus supposed to be crucified in every generation now? No. So what do we do? We reteach them the Bible, just like I was showing you right there. We reteach it to them, and now we start showing them who they really are. Because what do we do? Defend and destroy. De block and punch. Defense, offense. And now we go, you know those things you said you didn't have to have faith in before, like apples and, and you know, math and all that stuff? We run them down that road now, don't we? We say, where did those things come from? Where did that come from? You know, and you just take your time with them. Well, I got it from brain. Got it from brain. Oh, you mean that cantaloupe-sized piece of meat that has chemicals on it told you something? Last time I looked at a brain sitting in a jar, it doesn't say anything. Oh, there's a lot of complicated stuff that goes on in there, and they're figuring it out, and, and possibly it could be this, possibly it could be that. By faith, by faith, you're believing that then, right? So by faith, you're believing you're a rational person because some scientist is right now performing experiments. By faith, you're now, you're now assuming you're not a soul by, by faith. Do you know that they say we're doing God of the gaps all the time because we say God did it, God did it? And then here's the reason why they say God of the gaps is because they don't have an answer. And then what they really believe in is atheism of the gap. Science of the science will explain it. Science, but you're not listening to us. We believe in science too. Have you heard of Sir Isaac Newton? He explained gravity. But the question he was answering for us with his belief was that where does gravity come from? You don't get gravity from gravity. You don't get natural laws from nature. You can't be your own mother or father. Are you listening? And so what we start to do is we walk them through it. And I want to show you how to do this. <clears throat> so I'm going to do it a little bit of a different way. You guys have heard some of these things before. But let me take you to a few scriptures and uh, show you this. Okay, now, the first thing is when people try to change our definition of faith to, to basically mean faith, faith is make-believe. I want you to be able to show them that faith is not make-believe, okay? Let me put in the definition of faith here. I had it ready, but somehow I must have lost it. And it did it to me again. Where'd that thing go? There we go. What does faith mean right here? Would you read this out, please? That's all it means. That's all we've ever meant it means. I'm going to prove that to you. Now they go a strong belief in God and all those things. Yeah. If you want to apply it to Jesus or religion... Like it says over here, yeah. But what is it by definition? 
And did it exist in the world by that definition the same time the Bible's being written? Meaning, when the biblical authors are using this word, do they mean it the same way we mean it today? And yes, they did. Let me show it to you. Let's go to the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Old Testament Bible translated into Greek a few hundred years before Jesus. What, what's the date of the Septuagint? Does anybody know? I believe it's like 150 years before Jesus. That will be my guess, final answer. Look at Psalm 117, verse 8. It is good to what in the Lord? To trust in the Lord. Thank you. The one that's sick, it said it, and then Vinny came right behind. But let's all say it together. It is what? Good to trust in the Lord rather than to what? Trust in a person. Does everybody see that? So according to our Bible, at this time, David is writing, I believe, in the Old Testament here. Let's see if it's a Psalm of David. Uh, it doesn't say. Did you get the answer to when the Septuagint was written? Yeah, so mid-second century could be, yeah, 150 years before Christ. Good guess, right? So here's the deal. We look at this in its context, and we see that the biblical authors literally use this same exact word for God and for people. And the reason why I wanted to keep it in the Greek, so we can be familiar with the Greek word that we use in the New Testament for faith, which is pisti. And trust means patheo. Those two words sound similar, but they're two different words. Faith, believe, and trust can be pistis, or trust, believe, and I don't think it's so much as faith, it's just trust or believe, is pithuo. So I'm going to teach you these two Greek words, pistis and pithuo. Okay, everybody say pistis, and everybody say pithuo. Okay, so I'm going to show you these two words that are used in both covenants, old and, old and new, and by going to the Greek of the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, but translated into the Greek, as we said, about 150 years before Jesus, we see that the people easily at that time understood that word trust, pathuo, to be what you can do for God or what you can do for people. So now do you understand when I say the unbeliever is still a believer? Do you guys get that? The unbeliever is still a believer. They're just believing in someone other than God. So when we use the term believer and unbeliever, we don't want to be so naive to think the unbeliever is neutral and doesn't believe anything. That's oftentimes what they'll try to get you to believe. I'm just neutral. I just look at the facts. I haven't really made a decision yet. I'm not like a religious fanatic like you. I don't have that much faith. And it's like, eh, let's back up. Let's see all the faith you have right now. Do you have faith that you're a person? It, it, prove that to me in science. Can you do that? Uh, prove to me we're in the real world right now. Do you believe that? Yeah, you do, because you have faith in that. How about this? Do you believe you're going to be the same person today, tomorrow, and the next day, or you're going to lose your mind or become a different person? Do you believe in this? Do you believe? And you could take them through a thousand things. And then how about this? What happens to you when you die? Because something will happen. What do you believe? I believe that I'll become dirt. I'll believe, I believe nobody knows. You believe nobody knows, right? That's your faith. You're putting your faith that all these religions are wrong, and especially Christianity. You're putting your bet on nobody knows. 
See, let's be real. You got a lot of faith. And as one guy wrote a book with Geisler, Stephen, uh, not Stephen Furtick, uh, God bless him, amen, to learn some of these things. Uh, but um, Frank Turek with Norman Geisler wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Because to be a Christian, all you need is a mustard seed of faith. But to believe the redonkulous things they believe, you need an extra, extraordinary amount of faith. Now, the reason why I don't like using that term that way is because a lot of times people uh, well, I should say I even believe this, that faith is a virtue. It's a, it's a gift of God given in the image. And so when we say I don't have enough faith, it's actually not true faith. It's actually make-believe. So they are misapplying faith, and when you misapply faith, it's called make-believe. But that's another discussion of how virtues are twisted. So it's like love becomes perversion. So it, it would almost like them saying, I don't have enough love to do X, Y, and Z. And so I don't like faith being used in that same way because we, we do have more real faith than the atheists. They're actually just deceiving themselves. So it's, they're, they're actually believing in lies, which is not faith. It's a perversion of faith. Does everybody get where I'm going there? It's, um, it's not the virtue itself. It's moving away from the virtue. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can I get my water in the back there, please? Just want to show you this again. In the time of David, he wrote the word trust. Pethuo is the Greek translation of that hundreds of years later. Do you get that? Either way you look at it in the Hebrew or you look at it in the Greek. Let me just put it in the Hebrew for you right here. Psalm 117.8. So you can see it's the same word. 117. Verse 8. Now this is where you get into the problem with using the Septuagint. Which way does the Septuagint go offsetting, forwards or backwards, Jared? Is it Psalm 118 or Psalm 116? Okay. The Septuagint is one psalm off. It's either 116 or 118. It's 118. The Septuagint is one behind the normal counting. They count psalms differently. That's just another discussion. Same, same exact stuff. It's just counted differently. And we all know chapters and verses aren't original, right? We know that? Okay, good. You're in Bible college. Amen. You know King James wasn't the version Paul used. Amen. Okay, good. Can't, can't convince a King James only as that, right? That's, that's the version Paul used, he'll say. You know, half kidding there. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. And let me just show you here. The word refuge right here is hasot, hasot, and then when you go to the same word right here, it is batoth. So it actually uses two different words. Look at that. I thought it was the same word. So the Septuagint makes it the same word, but here <clears throat> they use two different words. Good thing I'm learning with you guys in Bible college. Hasot. And bato, two different words, but mean the same exact thing. But refuge, I'm assuming, can also mean trust in the Greek. Uh, that's why they use that in the Greek. And so when it says, I take my refuge in you, then to rather trust in humans, the Septuagint says, we're going to use the same exact word and call it trust. Now, do those little differences matter? I don't think they matter much, but I wanted to show you even there, though, 
if it's not the same word, the play on words is the same. Take your refuge with God rather than trust in a person. That could have been the original mindset they were trying to say, but the Greek says, well, the refuge you're taking in God is in the same way we're trusting in God, so they use the word trust. So we don't lose it. It just took us on a rabbit trail, and I learned a little bit there. I was hoping that it was going to confirm that it was two Greek words, but it wasn't, but I think it plays to the point, which is this. You have a choice to trust, take refuge in God, or to trust, take refuge in people. Everybody get it now? Okay, so how have we in the Old Testament, according to the Bible, been using the word pathuo, trust, which can also mean believe. We are using it in the same exact sense the people of that culture would use it to apply to themselves, trusting each other. But instead of doing that, we're going to trust God. Does everybody get that? So you cannot take our word trust and now try to say because we're using it in a religious context that now it means something like, I wished upon a star. You get what I'm saying? They're saying to you, I don't wish upon a stars. I do science. You religious people wish upon a stars. No, we're doing the same thing you do with the same exact words, meaning the same exact thing. But the difference is I'm doing that towards God. You're doing that towards a cantaloupe-sized piece of meat with chemicals on it in your brain. Or in that person you're calling God. Or in something you believe in other than God. Or a false God. Is everybody with me on that? Come on, somebody say amen if you're with me. Now let me show you where the word pithuo is used. Oh, excuse me. Let me show you where pithuo is used as confidence or believe. Okay? Here in the book of Ruth. Now notice how I said before, this is going to confirm what I actually just said before I was learning on the spot, that refuge and trust could kind of be synonymous. Watch this right here. This is in the Greek, but look at how it uses it. May the Lord compensate your work. May the Lord reward, uh, Ruth 2.12, may your reward be abundant from the Lord God of Israel to whom you came to be confident under his wings. See how refuge was used. So you could see in the Greek why they would take the word refuge and put it towards trust because in their words, in their language, that would mean the same exact thing because these are still the Greek translations. Are you with me? So once again, what do we mean by the word pathuo, trust, confidence? We mean it in this, towards God. We mean it in the same exact way they're using it towards people and things. Let's go on. Uh, these are some of the Apocrypha literature that the Jews respected and honored, and we should too think, think of them as being historical. But the Jews didn't consider them Scripture, and we don't either. The Roman Catholics counted it as Scripture and didn't do what the Jews do. It's counted them as history. So you and I, Christians, Protestants, have the exact same Old Testament as the Jews, in other words. We have the same Bible as Jesus. Cool? Okay. But here's how they used it. First Kingdoms 12, 12, 12 11. Very similar to like Chronicles and Kings. And he sent Jeroboam, Barak, Japheth, and Samson, and he delivered you from the hand of your enemies from all around you, and you lived in confidence. You lived in Pethuo, Pethuo rather. Let's keep going. Uh, Proverbs 10.9, the one who walks in integrity walks confidently walks with faith that things are going to work out, walks with trust that things are going to work out. Let's look at Syriac 4.15. The one who obeys her will judge nations, and the one who has come to her will dwell confidently. So uh, whoever this is referring to her, 
Uh, this may be wisdom. Uh, I believe that may be referring to wisdom. Let me just click on it so I can just see. Uh, wisdom is similar to Proverbs. Let's see. Yeah, wisdom. Okay. Okay, let's just keep going. Um, Judith 2.5. Thus says the great king, the Lord of all the earth, Behold, you who go out from my presence, and you will take with you men confident in their own strength. Does everybody get this? So you know like how people always say, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. That's another way to flip it on. Do you believe in yourself that you can lift this up? How do you know? You've never lifted up before, but you believe you can, right? You believe. You see, they try to make us feel like we're playing make-believe. No, we're not. We're using faith the same way you are. The only difference is we're putting it in God, and I'm going to tell you why that's very important in just a moment. Okay, now let's go to the Greek word pistuo. Didn't have as much time as I thought I would to get here. Here it is uh, used in the Old Testament as believe. Um, you know, all throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 4, 1, Moses answered and said, if they will not believe me or obey my voice, you know, what should I say to them? Uh, here, here we go. Uh, Proverb, Proverbs 14, 15 says, the naive believe or have faith in every word, but a prudent person comes into repentance. So doesn't even our book tell us not to be superstitious, to believe everything? So when they consider us to be believers in blind faith and all of these things, that is, a, that is a false accusation against us. We are even told in our Bible not to be naive. And another translation says simple. Don't be simple and believe everything. Don't put your faith in everything. Now, why is this important? Why this is important is because what is the most rational thing to believe in? Yeah. Is the most rational thing to believe in science? Is the most rational thing to believe in mathematics? No, because we don't know where it came from. Is the most rational thing to believe in this cantaloupe-sized organ you have up here in your skull? Nope. The most rational thing to believe in is that you were created by God and that God would reach out for you and come to you and speak to you. And when you hear the story of Jesus, you're hearing the story of God. It is the most rational thing to believe in. It is not irrational in any way. But is it irrational to put your faith in people? Yeah, ultimately it is. Is it irrational against reason to put your faith in your brain? Yeah, because guess what? If it came from evolution, why should you trust it? Evolution's a blind watchmaker. That's even what Darwin said. Now that I've come to believe in evolution, I believe I came from the goo through the zoo to you. Why should I even trust my brain now? Because my brain is a product of random chances. Why would I trust a monkey's brain? Right? We could have through evolution, been detoured a long time ago to be uh, skewed in our vision. We may all be seeing things absolutely wrong, but we're the only ones that lived, and so we don't understand the world we're living in right now. We only see it with the vision we can see because everyone that had clear vision and that could see, let's say, that there was angels or other things, all those people actually died a long time ago. So now all the mutants are the only ones alive now. We used to all see angels maybe, right? I mean, and I could say all these kinds of examples. We, we might have understood things that we don't understand now because all the people who understood them have now died. We might have had ten arms, and all the people with ten arms died, and now the only ones with two arms are alive. It could have been that way right through evolution. There's no guiding of it. Now watch this. What does the Bible say? Faith is confidence. Somebody say faith is confidence. And then assurance. Somebody say faith is confidence. Some may say faith is assurance. 
Now, faith and confidence and what you're hoping for, just like they're hoping for tomorrow to come, just like they're hoping for the paycheck to come, just like they're hoping for uh, aerodynamics to work on the plane and, and vehicle mechanics to work, they're hoping for that. And we don't see it, and you don't see it, but what are we hoping for? We're hoping and believing that the God who formed us, the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, will keep his word, keep his promises. And then that's why the Bible says that's what the ancients were commanded for. Now faith is commended for. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe, and it starts at the very beginning. That's why we always back them up to the beginning. Because by faith, we understand. See, think about that. Faith seeking to understand. That's what one of the great Christian philosophers said. Faith is always seeking to understand. Not just brushing off everything as a miracle. There may be some things that are miracles that we may not understand it more than just being a miracle. But not everything's a miracle. So faith is always seeking to understand. And if we say it's a miracle, now I understand why Peter walked on water. If there's a reason why cancer goes away uh, because of certain things we do, I want to understand that. But I'm also going to pray for a miracle of that. We're going to understand the difference between natural remedies and miraculous healings. Amen? By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now watch how the Bible teaches us. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken. By faith, Noah when warned. By faith, Abraham. And all of these things. And so what do we see? What they basically are doing is trusting God. That's why when we go back to that word, um, to those word studies, one of the places where it says trust, pethuo, it's actually used in the same passage that we now say believe. And I was going to show you some of those commonalities there. But look at it right here. Um, the word is rather pestuo. But in the translation here of the Greek, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham what with God? Trusted God. They had no problem taking the word believe and changing it to the word trust. Because in their mind, it was a very simple concept. Faith was not mysterious. Faith wasn't something just atheist, uh, just uh, religious people did. Faith was something all of us had the choice to do once, once we were given information about God. We now can decide to trust and believe him or put our trust in other things, mainly people or the devil. Because devil or people. What do we do in the garden? Put our trust in the devil instead of our trust in God. How's that been going for us? And how about at the Tower of Babel and ever since then? How about all the examples we have? When we put our trust in people, what happens? When you put your trust in the devil or you put your trust in people, look at what happens. Put your trust in God. Put your faith in God. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful lesson on faith. May we all live by faith and trust in you. Help us, God, when we are uh, confused or don't understand. May we seek to understand, to grow in faith, because you say faith grows and comes through the Word and through knowing you. And may we add to our faith all those wonderful things we read in Peter so we can be effective and productive with our, uh, in our walk with God, in our walk with you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.